Welcome to Building Bridges, ACMCU's premier podcast where we discuss, debate, and examine contemporary issues facing Muslim-Christian relations in the United States and abroad. I'm your host, Andrew Condon, Digital Communications Manager for ACMCU. The Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding was founded in 1993 at Georgetown University with a mission to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West, building bridges of understanding between Islam and Christianity. In this program, we will speak to experts, faith leaders, authors, and influencers about how their work is shaping the discourse and fostering interfaith dialogue within their respective communities. Dr. Juan R.I. Cole is a Richard P. Mitchell Collegiate Professor of History at the University of Michigan. For three and a half decades, he has sought to put the relationship of the West and the Muslim world in historical context. His most recent book is entitled Muhammad, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. We got a chance to talk and catch up with Dr. Cole after he gave a book talk here at ACMCU this past November. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, you just presented here at ACMCU a talk on the prophet, most specifically the history between uh, 300 and 700 uh, CE. Um, just before we get into that, though, could you give our audience a bit of an understanding of how you got involved in studying this field and, and why did you choose uh, this, this time period to study? My father was uh, in the U.S. military, and when I was a teenager, he had uh, a posting uh, in what is now Eritrea at Asmara. And Eritrea is about a third Muslim, uh, probably two-thirds Christian. And so I first encountered uh, Islam as a matter of daily life, uh, living there in Asmara. And it opened my eyes on a whole different world. Uh, and Eritrea also is on the fringes of the Middle East. Uh, at that time, there was a war going on in Yemen as well. Uh, and so we had people coming over as refugees of a sort. And uh, was there during the 1967 war. And uh, of course, people were consumed with that. So uh, I think it was that life experience that started me off. Uh, we came back through Beirut and uh, sp spent some time there. I really liked Beirut as a city when I was almost 16. And when I was an undergraduate, I had an opportunity. I got a, a fellowship that would allow me to carry out a research project abroad, really any place I liked. Uh, it was a wonderful opportunity. And so I designed a project that took me to Beirut. And I worked on Christian-Muslim dialogue, which was a big phenomenon in Lebanon in the wake of the Vatican II Council. And I began studying Arabic. And uh, so that's how I got going. And I did a master's degree in the American University in Cairo. Um, that involved a great deal of work on early Islam. And my doctorate then was later on from UCLA in Islamic studies. The Iranian Revolution and a whole series of political events pulled me into write, writing more about the modern Middle East. But I had been trained to study the very earliest stages of Islam and uh, had always wanted to go back to that. 
Now, in your new book, um, which you recently published, if you could give a bit of background about, um, you know, the book and the title, where people can find it, just a brief summary, since your talk was um, based uh, largely on um, a lot of the concepts brought about in your new publication. Yes, the talk uh, focused in on verses of the Quran from the ministry of the prophet that really advise uh, people how to deal with being harassed and taunted and humiliated by others, and which stressed uh, replying with peace, uh, replying with with prayers for peace on one's enemies, and assuring believers that if they behave in this way charitably towards those who bother them, uh, that they have a possibility of transforming their opponents into patrons uh, and people who would support them. That's really a beautiful sentiment, to be honest. Um, And I think it's something that a lot of people, predominantly here in the West, may not be aware of. Um, Now, in your talk, you you spoke of some of the earlier works of the prophet as that of ecumenical, almost, of of preaching and, and moving throughout the area in a manner of inviting people to uh, to listen to not only the recitation but to the message. Could you give a bit of a background on the prophet's early life and what life was like uh, during when the prophet came came to be and came came to his ministry? The uh, era was dominated by two great empires: the Roman, the Eastern Roman Empire, because the Rome had fallen itself in Italy, but the capital had been moved to Constantinople what is now Istanbul. And the Eastern Roman Empire was ruled in Greek uh, for the most part. Um, People locally spoke various languages. Uh, And in the Near Eastern realms of the Roman Empire, because the Romans ruled what is now Syria, Turkey, and uh, uh, Jordan, and Israel, Palestine, and Egypt, There was a custom of depending upon pastoral populations, uh, nomads, for uh, uh, help in defending the borders of the empire because the empire was largely cities uh, and it had a big hinterland of marginal land where pastoralists uh, grew livestock, wandered around for pasturage. Uh, Those people are natural cavalrymen. And uh, some of them might raid into the empire and attack cities, loot them. Others of them were put on a retainer, were given gold uh, by the emperor to defend cities like Damascus and Petra and Basra in the uh, Near East. Uh, and the Hejaz, where the Prophet Muhammad lived, uh, was full of those of those tribes. And the later Muslim sources, as well as the seventh-century Christian sources, depict him as a pro, as a um, merchant, as well as a religious seeker, uh, and someone who came up frequently through his life uh, to the Roman Empire. And so he functioned under the code of Justinian. Uh, he functioned under Roman law, Roman custom, and uh, some of his uh, clansmen likely served in the Roman army uh, or, or were, were allied with it uh, as what were called limitani uh, or uh, border guards. That's fascinating. I think a lot of people don't 
or at least those who may not be scholars, probably don't consider the fact that Rome, as an as a influencer, extended beyond a time period where one could remember there being depictions of you know centurions and uh, Roman architecture and, and so on and so forth. The, you know, the, the Rome that came to be the Christian Rome did spread throughout the region and has a, had a lot of influence up until and much after the time of the prophet, as, as, as you were mentioning. Um, regarding the time period, would you say it's important to study the time that holy text is, is, is uh, written or codified within to better understand the text? I know for, for Christians, it's, it's important to understand the time period through which uh, the Gospels and, and so on were written. But also, I, I would say the same as it must be true for, for Islam. Absolutely. Well, you know, in, in the study of Christianity, it's only really in the past few decades uh, that s- scholars of the New Testament have gotten trained in rabbinics uh, to understand the Jewish context of the rise of Christianity. Uh, and then, of course, the discovery of the Qumran scrolls uh, uh, helped in this process because some of what's in there seems awfully similar to some of what's in the New Testament. Uh, and so the contextualization of the New Testament uh, really has become a, a going enterprise uh, in the way that you suggest. And that uh, process really is at the very beginning for the Quran and early Islam. Um, now in Europe especially, I think it's it's more common for scholars to try to learn some Aramaic uh, on the theory that Aramaic Christianity of the Near East uh, was the immediate background for the rise of, of Islam. And some scholars are studying, for instance, the, uh, the Palestinian Talmud and uh, Jewish sources that were contemporaneous or, or just before uh, the Quran. Uh, I personally think that there's increasing evidence that the cities of the Near East uh, used Greek as their urban standard, you know, the way Beirut today uses French. Uh, And um, that has been a controversial uh, position earlier on, but uh, a a spectacular find was uh, discovered by archaeologists in Jordan in an old, old church in its basement. Uh, They found uh, papyri from the proprietor of the church in the 500s. And these letters are clearly by people with Arabic surnames, and they're all in Greek, uh, about their property, taxes, the relationship of the city to the empire, uh, and corresponding among themselves. So although they were presumably speaking Arabic at home, they were using Greek as, as, the, as their official language. Uh, and so uh, in addition to Hebrew and Aramaic sources, I argue that uh, that we have to, to look at uh, the continued um, stream of, of Greek uh, writing, theology, and literature uh, as some of the background for the Quran. That must have been a surprise to uh, both traditionalists as well as contemporary scholars to find a document that was written in Greek um, in, in an area that many would have considered to be non-Greek speaking. Yeah, the, the assumption had been that they would have been functioning in, in Aramaic, uh, and it turns out not necessarily to be true. That is amazing. That is amazing. It's very also probably exciting for scholars such as yourself 
who then see a different context for the way that communication was was, was transferred and transitioned. So in your talk today, um, you did mention Muhammad's life in um, in Medina and how travel during that time was is traditionally not seemed to have have been taking place at least in his own life. Um, but you said that that it is possible, or at least there are some, uh, you know, context for Muhammad traveling beyond uh, Medina during his lifetime and spreading his message. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and, and the significance of that? So the Arab Muslim sources, which are very late, I mean, they're between 130 and 300 years after the Prophet, um, admit that he traveled, uh, but in his youth. And then they don't talk about him traveling once he starts receiving uh, what they think of as revelations from God in, in 610 of the Common Era. The, there, is, uh, there are a couple of 7th century Christian sources which talk about him traveling. Uh, and they don't make that distinction. That is to say, they don't seem to say that he stopped traveling once he started becoming a prophet. And I think there's plenty of evidence in the Quran itself for the Prophet uh, continuing to move around once the Qur'an started coming to him. So, for instance, and, and this is not my discovery, but others have pointed out that at one point uh, the Prophet is preaching about the, prophet, the, the, the prophets of the Hebrew Bible to an audience, and he says, every morning you pass by Sodom. Well, ancient people thought Sodom was somewhere in the Dead Sea region, and one traveler in the 570s from Europe wrote a travelogue in Latin in which he said people thought that Sodom was between Jericho and Jerusalem and that it still gave off this kind of sulfurous smell. Uh, so uh, likely the prophet, when he addressed his audience and said, you pass by the remains of Sodom every morning, is talking to people up in, in what is now Palestine, uh, probably near Jer Jericho, and so I think he continued to travel, and I think he preached up there. And some of the Qur'an's audience is not in the Hejaz, not in Arabia and Mecca and Medina, but in uh, 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 the Near East, uh, the, the, Levant, the, the Levantine Near East. So you, you, in your talk, you, you had a comparison uh, between a uh, Christian figure of St. Paul and, and the prophet himself in the regards to his evangelicalism in, in preaching and moving about. Have you been the first scholar to draw this comparison? And if so, you know, why, why do you feel there is this similarity between uh, St. Paul, uh, the evangelist, and uh, the prophet? Yes, I, I think I'm probably the first person ever to have said this. Uh, and uh, I want to make clear I'm not uh, equating the two or putting them on the same level. I'm simply saying that as the objects of historical inquiry, they pose a similar challenge. If I'm right that the Prophet Muhammad uh, continued to travel after the revelations came to him and that some of the Quran is directed at various audiences in Yemen, uh, in the Hejaz, and in Transjordan and Palestine and Syria, uh, then he's very much like St. Paul uh, who, who traveled widely uh, in the then Roman Empire. Uh, and um, uh, how would you study, you know, the, the letters of St. Paul as historical documents. You would want to look at what literary sources said were going on, you know, things going on in, in 
Corinth or the archaeology or, you know, to set his letters to the Corinthians in their historical context. The same thing with his trip to Athens. And, uh, and then you would want to know about uh, first century Judaism and uh, as well as first century uh, Eastern Greek culture. And so uh, I think in the same way that scholars have tried to study uh, Paul and to do a biography, an intellectual biography of him from his surviving letters and from these contextualizing materials, I think that's the way we have to approach the Quran. I think it's now pretty clear that the Quran is early 7th century. It's 610 to 632 are the traditional Muslim dates, and I think that's just about right. Uh, and then if the prophet was traveling, um, you know, it affects how we understand the verses of the Quran. If, if they're being directed at, at, say, Christian audiences in Transjordan, then it makes sense of why many, many times the Quran just alludes to biblical stories, assuming clearly that its audience knows them. If the traditional Muslim accounts were right that he was in pagan Mecca, then that doesn't make any sense. Those pagan Meccans presumably didn't know all of those biblical stories, and so you would have expected the Quran to patiently tell the stories more, more uh, in more detail. Uh, but if the prophet was traveling and was sometimes addressing Christians or Jews elsewhere, then the elusiveness of the of the recounts accounts of the uh, biblical prophets uh, becomes more understandable. Now, now Paul was able to really move about um, the Mediterranean due in part to Roman infrastructure, the roads, for example. Um, now, Saint Paul did this, one could say, centuries, if not before, um, before the prophet was uh, was active in the region. Did Roman infrastructure make its way into the area in which uh, the prophet resided and, and where uh, commerce took place in that region? Absolutely. Uh, the Romans didn't usually rule the Hejaz, Western Arabia, directly, although uh, they did have some cities there at some points. Uh, and so there's a city called uh, 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 Hijr, or uh, nowadays uh, Medayan Saleh, where there's Latin graffiti from the Roman garrison is still written uh, there. Uh, and there isn't so much in the way of infrastructure uh, remaining from the Romans in the Hejaz. But there's, uh, there was a royal highway from uh, the Gulf port of Aqaba, which is in today's Jordan, uh, up to Damascus. Uh, and uh, here's an interesting proposition that I, I think the prophet almost cer certainly in his trading journeys went on that highway. Uh, the, in, it, it was called a paved road. In Latin, it was a via strata. Uh, the Arabic in the Quran for treading the straight path that God wants you to, to tread is a, a sirat al-mustaqim. Sirat is an Arabic uh, corruption or loan from strata. Uh, so that idea of the royal highway uh, even becomes adopted from Roman practice as a theological concept in the Quran. Because the Romans, they were notoriously known for building straight yes, roads <laughs> uh, so that water could pool on the sides and, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I always find it fascinating to look at um, St. Paul and his uh, travelings 
because of the technology of the time. Um, so I, I do find that interesting. Another thing that, that you evoked in your talk was this description of the prophet as, as, a, as a peacemaker of sorts, as, which in some circles does contradict this more militaristic uh, notion of the prophet during his time, during his life. Did you want to talk a little bit about why you feel it's so important to to look at historically the the peacemaking and and the um uh, the more nonviolent elements of of the message of the Quran and, and of um um and of from that time and and from the works of the Prophet? Um, why why is that important? If not then, very much so now. Well, um, you know the Quran. Uh, is full of verses about conciliation, making peace, wishing peace on your on your enemies and your tormentors, uh, and uh, it's a book full of of warmth. Uh, the words for mercy, compassion, forgiveness occur hundreds of times, each of them in the Quran, and uh, so Muslims who grow up with the Quran and know it well, many of them memorize it are really puzzled by the uh, conviction among many Western uh, uh, Christians that the Quran is somehow a bleak or a harsh uh, book. And, of course, most of the people who make these allegations haven't actually read it. Uh, but uh, it, peacemaking is a big, uh, a big theme in the Quran, and also replying peacefully to harassment of anything short of lethal violence uh, is, is a big thing in the Quran. Uh, the Quran does permit uh, self-defense, uh, but I would argue that after Constantine's uh, conversion to Christianity in 312, the theologians of the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, and, and, and Latin theologians as well, um, began thinking more seriously about peace and war uh, because when they had been a persecuted minority, the Christians didn't have to have an elaborated idea about war. They weren't in a position to wage war. But once they're in control of the Roman Empire, uh, then you have to have an ethics of war. And so uh, St. Ambrose, uh, in writing in the late 300s, says that if you allow somebody to come and harm an innocent in front of you and do nothing about it, you're as bad as the aggressor. And he says this as a Christian theologian. Uh, and St. Augustine, of course, uh, developed an entire set of theses about just war. Uh, much of this is in the Roman tradition of thinking on these things, uh, going back to Cicero. I don't find the Quran's attitude towards these subjects in any way different from that of someone like Augustine of Hippo. Uh, I think they, they hold a very similar point of view on things, which is there are circumstances in which one is attacked, one has to defend the innocent. Uh, there are circumstances in which people try to coerce your conscience. You have to not allow that to happen. Uh, and so picking up a sword is necessary at some points. And of course, Augustine argued against his Manichaean uh, former colleagues uh, who were pacifists uh, that uh, uh, turning the other cheek it has to be contextualized, and it's not always the way one would behave. Uh, and the Quran agrees. I mean, the Quran is doesn't is not an outlier in in late antique thinking on these matters. But even 
after it gives permission for the believers to defend themselves from aggressive attacks um, by Arab pagans, uh, it also goes on to say that uh, were the aggressor to sue for peace, that you have to accept the armistice, uh, that y- you, you may not disregard their, their pleas uh, that, that the, the fighting stop. Uh, you can't pursue aggressive warfare, in other words. Uh, again, this is something that is in the Church Fathers as well. So in, in the fact that um, this talk and, and this activity is being held at the Center for Muslim Christian Understanding here at Georgetown, do you feel that looking back at the history of the of faith formation in both Islam and Christianity, that understanding the time period and, and, and the political uh, you know, components of that period help us to understand how sacred text came to be, but also how peace between peoples can be established now in looking back with that understanding. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I think it's extremely pertinent uh, whether Christians, when they approach the Quran and the history of early Islam, understand uh, that there is this emphasis on peace uh, and understand that the Verses about war are about defensive warfare, uh, rather than rushing to judgment and seeing the Quran as peculiarly violent, uh, which is often what is done, uh, and quite hypocritically, because I mean, uh, in the Jewish and Christian traditions, there's the Book of Joshua, which uh, um, is not a pacifist document, and that often is set aside or forgotten. Uh, that the Bible has a good deal of violence in it. Uh, the emphasis then is on the New Testament, on the Sermon on the Mount. But many verses in the Quran uh, sound a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, and I think at least one of them may refer uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then uh, the idea that Muslims have in history behaved in a peculiarly violent way is simply not true. And certainly the late Roman Empire, uh, uh, the post-Constantine Christian Roman Empire, conducted uh, wars and wars of conquest and uh, uh, forced conversions in Europe of Germans and so forth that uh, are not questioned by serious historians. Uh, so I think uh, being able to be fair-minded when one looks back at the history of these uh, movements. In light of that notion, what, what could you say to perhaps Christians and, and uh, people of the book out there who are in cultures where Islamophobia, for example, is kind of ramping up due to these fears of the quote-unquote other or a misunderstanding of different cultures— what would you say to those out there who see themselves as mindful and faithful people of of uh, a faith practice? Um, what can they do to arm themselves with a, a, a sense of understanding to combat these notions of of fear of of an other that, in reality, is quite similar? That's right. Well, um, there is a great deal of irrational. Um, bigotry towards uh, Islam and Muslims in the United States and Western Europe uh, today. And some of it, frankly, is connived at uh, by powerful, powerful interests. Uh, there are 
a handful of billionaires who give a lot of money uh, to spreading around uh, this fear of uh, Muslims and Islam. Uh, and uh, whether because they themselves are bigots or because they think it's socially useful to have people divided, I couldn't tell you. Uh, but that's been documented. Uh, I think for people who are of goodwill and who want to know more about Muslims and Islam, I'd advise them to read books published by university presses or by professors at universities uh, because there's a cottage industry of uh, people essentially off the street who, who write these screeds and who seem to go to the top of the Amazon uh, bestseller list. I don't know if their billionaire backers are secretly buying, buying up some of the books to produce that result. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of scurrilous writing by people who have no idea what they're talking about, people who don't know Arabic. And uh, I mean, would you really trust a scholar of ancient Judaism who didn't know Hebrew? Uh, but, but the equivalent, you know, is, is at the top of the bestseller list. Uh, so uh, I try to, you know, read people who are themselves academics or are publishing uh, at academic presses, um, that's how you tell if something has been peer-reviewed, if it's been uh, tested by other experts in the field. So, you know, our, your own John Esposito has written large numbers of books on these subjects, uh, which are very accessible and which I, I highly recommend. Then, beyond reading or trying to get up to speed uh, in that way, I think it's important for people to know Muslims. Uh, visit your local mosque uh, and see what goes on there. I think people will be shocked at how welcoming uh, those institutions are. Uh, and uh, it's, it's demonstrated in the opinion polling that Americans who say they know a Muslim have a much higher estimation of the community uh, than those who do not. Uh, and since there are only 3.5 million Muslims in the United States, uh, you have to make an effort uh, to get to know them. Uh, but it's well rewarded. And uh, so I think people have to be proactive. And why go through life with an irrational hatred? You know, it's very destructive. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. But before we go, could you let everyone know what the title of your book is and perhaps how they can find a copy of it? Yes. So the, the book is entitled Muhammad Colon, Prophet of Peace Amid the Clash of Empires. Uh, and uh, it's by Juan Cole, J-U-A-N-C-O-L-E. Uh, it's widely available in your local uh, bookstores and uh, online. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cole. It was a pleasure to have you here with us. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Building Bridges, brought to you by ACMCU. Follow us on Twitter, at ACMCU, and like our Facebook page, at acmcu.georgetown. Feel free to submit any questions and tune in for upcoming episodes. <laughs>